CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by Minima.Global, Circle, and Pastel Network. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world. All on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Hash on Coindesk TV. And if you're listening to us, you are listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jens Nancy. We got Zach Seward doing a little dance there. <laughs> Wendy O beside him and Will Foxley. Another day, another day to discuss what is going on with all of the FTX drama. Zach, I'm going to kick it off to you for our first story. What do you got? The beatings will continue until morale improves. That is the word here out in the crypto land today. This time, Genesis, the big time crypto lender, its lending arm is halting customer withdrawals, likely due to some exposure to FTX, the now bankrupt crypto exchange. This note, of course, Genesis is owned by the same parent company as Coindesk, that is Digital Currency Group. So making that disclosure up here at the top. If this were to be the next shoe to fall in this crypto unwinding, it would be a big one. So we're going to talk about it here. Let's talk about Genesis and understand its role in the space. I want to talk to Will for just a quick history on what Genesis provides to many firms across the crypto landscape. Yeah, I'll start off with saying that Coindesk is a family-friendly publication. But if there were a time to curse on air, this would be the time. Because Genesis is that important to the cryptocurrency ecosystem. Their loan originations back up so many different firms. They underlie the market-making systems for all these crypto tokens which adds liquidity to the market, adds actually like a reasonable price when you're going to go buy a token like Bitcoin. And then they have a lot of loans out there just for people in the, the normal space as well, right? If you want to run your business, you need capital. Genesis came about, uh, about 2015, 2016 or so. They've been one of the largest loan origination firms in the space. They're owned by Digital Currency Group, uh, which of course is kind of like this large octopus, if you will, like the standard oil of crypto where they have like a lot of different controlling interests and many businesses. And those businesses are all extremely fundamental to crypto for good reason. They've been around for a while. They've been robust. They've been able to weather all the storms, all the cycles in crypto. But this one seems to have bitten them a little bit. DCG, of course, is well known for its equity 
uh, options for Bitcoin and Ethereum with its trust, which you can just purchase in like your Charles Schwab account or somewhere else. And this Genesis account is slightly different. It's owned by DCG. And oftentimes we're seeing right now that DCG steps in and helps Genesis out. So we saw that over the summer where Genesis also took a big haircut from what happened with Terra, Luna, and 3AC. And DCG came in and gave them some cash. And they did that the other week, again, with a $130 million equity infusion into Genesis to keep them afloat. But now this news comes that they are halting any loan originations and withdrawals for the moment, which is, that's pretty big news in terms of all the people who are relying on Genesis and then also the market making activities. It does seem right now that Genesis is going to continue trading, uh, which is very, very important. I don't think a lot of people think about the market making space, but Alameda was a large market maker for all crypto, especially for Bitcoin. And when you lose a market maker, that means that prices are all over the place. Uh, you're not going to get a good price entry. And for people who are looking to move into the space, and you need people to move in the space to help the price recover, well, you need to have good market making. And so if Genesis trading stops market making, or if there's any fluctuations around that, that's also something to watch. And that would be very detrimental to the space. Wendy, I want to throw it up to you, though, and get your take on the story. So first, I do have funds on Gemini, and I do believe that they are doing maintenance maintenance right now. So we'll see how that plays out. Fingers crossed that they are okay. I know that they were one of the exchanges that didn't provide proof of reserves or Miracle Tree. They just says, you're safe. We're registered here. We're registered there. But again, we've heard many other CEOs in crypto say this. As far as Genesis goes and as far as market making goes, this is immensely important because I don't think that Bitcoin has capitulated yet. And in fact, when it does, People are going to want to get start trading altcoins a little bit more because there's a lot of fear in the market. And if we don't have these market makers out there to kind of stabilize price, people are going to be getting liquidated. Their stops are going to be getting hit. It is going to be an absolute mess. Again, if you have cryptocurrency on any centralized exchange, please consider getting it off. I don't think anything is super safe right now. Yeah, it's just really is a domino effect, right? The last six months have been super tough in this industry. Well, like you said, Genesis lost hundreds of millions of dollars in the 3AC blow up. And Wendy, to what you're saying, so just for our audience, Genesis works with Gemini for their EARN program, right? And over the last two days, Gemini has been releasing emails that, and I, I'm not trying to FUD here, that are saying, you know, our funds are fine. We have enough assets to back customer funds. But I just feel like the industry customers have lost trust because of that SBF tweet that is now deleted that we saw a week ago saying assets are fine, everything is fine. Now, Wendy, you're saying that apparently Gemini has gone offline for maintenance. Maybe that is true. Maybe, you know, they're just trying to figure out what's going on behind the scenes because everyone is trying to get their funds off of these exchanges for good reason. And it just feels like a really dire situation. Will, I'll give it to you for last thoughts. I'll, I'll go right quick and then to Zach. I think a lot of people, when they think about the space, the first thing they think about is exchange they touch or their favorite token or their NFT. But there's people behind all that stuff that make these things work. And Genesis is one of those firms, right? They are large and they're quiet. The fact that we know about them now, that they're being loud because something's going on, means that things are bad. So this is definitely a very large story to watch. Hopefully, things open up again and there's not a liquidity crunch. Up to Zach, though. Yeah, it just goes to show the interconnectedness that exists within the crypto industry. There's all these companies that exist on top of crypto, the bigger thing, but the crypto industry is often tightly interconnected. Pass it back to you, Will, for the next story. Let's change gears. Okay, we're sticking with FTX fallout, this time on Sam Bankman-Fried's interesting 
media plays since he stepped down from FTX and since the Chapter 11 filings. Of course, most people who are watching the show will probably be familiar with SBF's weird Twitter rant last week where he just slowly tweeted out a bunch of letters and people were like, what's going on? He ended up spelling out what happened and added a huge thread talking about what has happened with FTX from his purview. That tweet thread had a lot of interesting stuff in it that I don't think is necessarily true. He talked about like the mark-to-market value of a lot of the assets on FTX's and FTX US's book versus the loans out to uh, Alameda. Those numbers didn't really hold up to scrutiny, and there was a lot of Twitter barbs thrown his way based on top of that. Also talked about how FTX US filed for Chapter 11 after he had previously tweeted that FTX US was completely back one-to-one for assets to liabilities. That, of course, did not occur. And now we've seen FTX and SBF. We're seeing them in a few different places. There's two New York Times articles that were sort of soft and made a lot of people unhappy. We saw Brian Armstrong of Coinbase tweeting about how there's this new citizen journalism mob running around actually uncovering the truth before journalists are. And then we also have SBF possibly going to talk with Dave Portnoy of Barstool in the coming hours. We don't know if that's actually going to happen, but we got a tweet here showing conversation between the two of them. So we have like this very odd media moment where we have a huge exchange, a former CEO of an exchange imploding, and he's acting somewhat childish online. And we have all these media personalities trying to get into the action and get into the mess here. Zach, I want to throw it up to you, get your thoughts on all this. I don't really know if I have an angle or a thought on it besides just it looks bad and it's probably not good for a bankruptcy hearing. The more I think about it, the more I think of this whole thing is a media story, right? If we go back to the balance sheet that was leaked to Ian Allison and published on Coindesk that exposed some irregularities in uh, Alameda Research's bookkeeping, some creative accounting over there relating to the FTT token, that's the thing that started this whole thing. So just to set the record straight, Ryan Armstrong, this started with some hard-nosed reporting, some good shoe-leather reporting by the likes of Ian Allison and his editors at Coindesk. Subsequent things that were surfaced by the Twitter mob were highly valuable in advancing this conversation, but it starts with some good uh, sourcing, verification, and journalism that got this thing rolling, right? But if you think actually back before that, I think that maybe some of the undoing of this whole story starts with the Eric Voorhees SBF debate about the bill that many saw as being highly harmful to DeFi. I think that's kind of when SBF lost the room and maybe may have made the source that shared that document with Ian Allison, again, pure speculation here, may have made that that source more willing to do so at that point in time. So I think it really goes to show that the media narratives that are driving this whole episode uh, have real major ramifications, implications, and ultimately affect the wallets of many a person across this space. So the idea that this has played out across the media sphere, I think, is really fascinating to sort of unpack not just the mudslinging and the name calling and the ugliness that we see on Twitter, but also just sort of the meta narratives around who knows what in this space and how they know it. And it's really fascinating to understand this from the media lens. And I think a lot of people are trying to do that right now. Wendy, I saw your hand, though. I'm tossing it to you. Actions speak louder than words. And until somebody can actually prove that they are making a change or fix something, I don't really care what they tweet out. I don't care what they say because it doesn't mean anything. At this point, we've seen a clear bias with mainstream media, which I can get to an extent. People do have to report to their bosses, et cetera. But at the same time, I feel like it's also disgraceful. But again, actions speak louder than words. Lip service 
doesn't isn't good enough in this situation when you have a $10 billion hole. Yeah, SPF's Twitter account has just made me really angry lately. We're seeing tweets get deleted. We're seeing tweets that are adding really no value. There's a quote in this article from Ken White. He said that his legal advice is to shut the F up as the hashes legal advisor here. That is also my <laughs> advice, SPF. Please shut the F up. I don't want to hear from you anymore. I think the facts are being revealed. There's now this chapter 11 bankruptcy hearing. We are going to get the facts. And I just like don't want to hear from SPF's perspective why this happened anymore. There is just too much damaging evidence. Zach, I'll give it to you for the last word. I'll, I'll do it quick and then I'll throw it to Will. But I think it's really fascinating that this is unfolding with Twitter's own sort of crisis, right? We saw Elon Musk come in, mm -hmm. take over Twitter. There's been some very uh, high profile departures, firings, all sorts of stuff that is sort of uh, causing some to consider leaving Twitter. But we see this major, major story within the crypto markets playing out almost exclusively on Twitter, right? We have CZ, we have SBF, we have all these figureheads who are uh, sharing information, uh, doing all sorts of crazy things that are affecting the outcome of this big story. So the fact that this whole thing continues to rage on Twitter when Twitter is also having a kind of uh, internal crisis remains pretty fascinating to me. Will, I'm giving you the last word though. Yeah, I just kind of actually want to riff on what you were saying earlier. I think this whole story vindicated crypto journalism and just good, hard tech journalism in general. And a lot of people are missing that, especially Brian Armstrong's tweet yesterday talking about citizen journalism. And that's not what broke the story. Yes, a lot of things came out of from Twitter. A lot of people are looking on chain, they're looking at data and evidence and throwing that up on Twitter. We saw that being very important with Celsius, Voyager, 3AC, Luna. Very important. And I'm glad that that has happened. But I think people are missing the point here that the, like the actual journalism, finding out the story, getting good sources, verifying it. That's what led to this whole thing happening in the first place. And you wouldn't have had that Twitter discussion if you didn't have the article in the first place. So not a shill for Coindesk, maybe a shill for Ian Ellison but definitely uh, something important to take away from the story. So here's a big question. What's the most important thing about crypto? It's not transactions per second. It's not convenience. And it's not even smart contracts. It's decentralization to achieve censorship resistance so we can all be free. Minima is a new layer one blockchain designed to run in full on a smartphone so that anyone can participate in building Minima's decentralized network as an equal. Join over 300,000 Minima node runners on the incentive program today to start earning Minima every day until mainnet launch. Get started at Minima.global. This episode is brought to you by Circle, the sole issuer of USDC and a leader in crypto that's held to a higher standard. USDC is a fast, safe, and efficient way to send money around the globe. USDC is always redeemable one-to-one -one for US dollars and has over $45 billion in circulation as of October 13th, 2022. Plus, Circle posts weekly reserve reports and monthly attestations of reserve capital, letting users know that USDC is safe, transparent, and compliant with regulations. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to see why USDC is a trusted stablecoin. Have you ever tried creating an NFT? Creators usually face limitations from existing marketplaces and tools or are hindered by complex coding requirements if they try to do it themselves. Well, those days are over. 
Smart Mint by Pastel Network is a free-to-use and no-code platform that makes minting NFTs easier than ever. Create custom NFT drops and collections across ecosystems like Ethereum and Polygon, while also having the flexibility to add customized features and manage existing creations with just a few clicks. Get started today for free at smartmint.pastel.network. So, do we have a redemption story here? Came out that LFG spent $2.8 billion defending the UST PEG third-party audit fines. This is consistent with LFG's tweets on May 16th, 2022. They spent approximately $613 million of their own capital to defend the PEG, and report shows that funds were spent to defend the PEG and that the LFG remaining balances are the only funds remaining. Apparently, this dispels embezzlement or misuse of funds. LFG funds were used to benefit insiders. LFG funds were frozen by law enforcement. Now, I still don't have a good taste in my mouth when it comes to Do Kwan in no way, shape, or form. Am I saying that he should be absolved of everything or any wrongdoing? This is just what was indicated in the story. Zach, would you like to take this? <laughs> sure, I'll take it. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I don't know. It's hard to make sense of this stuff, right? We have 3AC on CNBC trying to mount a comeback tour from the last blow up, pointing fingers at FTX role and potentially that implosion as well. So it's really uh, interesting to see these past disgraced figures sort of pipe up in this moment and make the case for why they were less bad. Do I necessarily uh, believe them? No. Do I necessarily discount what they're saying entirely? Also no. So it is interesting to sort of ponder whether or not the actions of Doquan in this instance with the Luna collapse were necessarily ill-intentioned or whether in reality he thought that he could fix it, right? And I think what he's presenting here is that, hey, I thought we could really fix it. What fool would spend $2.8 billion and just you know, dump it into a hole that they knew was a complete scam from the get-go, right? That's what he's saying. And hey, maybe there's something to be believed in that. But the fact that this is happening right now against the context of this broader implosion that's being reckoned with in the crypto markets makes the timing a bit suspect. So I don't know. I reserve judgment on this one. I don't discount it out of hand. Um, but for Doquan to be piping up and getting back in the headlines now is a bit remarkable. Will? Yeah, I agree with you. Like We're seeing the 3AC guys go on CNBC this morning, which you just mentioned. That was nauseating and frustrating that CNBC even allowed them on air. So they did get them with like a little gotcha question, which I appreciated. We're seeing a lot of people come back in the woodwork. And I, I think this report and audit probably just coincidence of timing because it was the third party that did it. I don't know if this really helps them out, though, just because yes, you did spend that money doesn't mean that you were technically correct, right? It failed at all, right? And we already have a great reporting from Coindesk showing that Doquan had behind had been behind different projects like this before that had failed. Back in 2020, he was working on at least one different algo stablecoin project that also failed and had a very similar design. So just because you're doing it at scale and you're actually using a lot of money and you're holding up your promises on that end doesn't mean what you're doing in the first place wasn't stupid and foolish. I mean, that peg couldn't be defended because it was technically infeasible. There's nothing like that has worked before. There's been many attempts at building an algo stablecoin and just dumping a bunch of money into a hole, like you said, Zach. It doesn't prove anything. It just means that you were silly enough to do that. So I think it's frustrating, and I don't think it really absolves anyone of any guilt in this situation. It is better than stealing that $2.8 billion of Bitcoin, which a lot of people at the time thought maybe LFG had done that. Uh, but it certainly doesn't fix the situation at all. Jen, over to you. 
Yeah, I feel the same way as all of you. It feels a little bit opportunistic. I agree, Will, that maybe the audit just came out now and it's maybe just a coincidence. I went to Do Kwan's Twitter thread. So he unpacked this information in a 13 tweet long thread. And I looked at the responses and, and the resounding response from people on Twitter was, okay, so where's our money? And it just reminded me that so many people put so much trust in these people and, and systems without thinking a little bit further, right? We've been trained to think that, you know, if the bank or credit card company loses our money, or if we're a victim of fraud, that there is some kind of stop there. We have some kind of insurance to get that money back. I think this is a nice reminder for people who are getting into the space that it is still extremely new. It is still extremely volatile. Don't put anything into something you've just learned about that you are not willing to lose. So I just hope that people take that away. I, I was sad reading these tweets this morning, responding to Do Kwan, like, where's our money? I lost everything. I put my whole life savings into this. Don't do this. These systems are still being tested out. We are still trusting one person or a group of people with our funds. And so until we can build these systems out a little bit more and, and have that trust and verification, just be careful. Zach? So, I mean, we're seeing all these CFI implosions, but Terra was like a DeFi implosion, right? Terra was like just an algorithmic stable coin that entered a death spiral and took a lot of people out with it. So it is nice reminder. Uh, we're hearing a lot of DeFi fixes this out in the market today with, with FTX, but there have been recent examples from recent history that indicate that poor on-chain design can also lead to catastrophic failures that then have ramifications for the centralized finance parties that are interacting with these protocols. So I think it is a nice corrective to some of the DeFi like, you know, like, like uh, triumphalism that's out there right now, because that one was indeed sort of an on-chain failure, uh, likely a flawed design around this dream of the algorithmic stablecoin. But, you know, it's just something to remember. Wendy? Really quick, DeFi, you can track everything on-chain, and it's just interesting to see all the conflicting reports that recently or that were coming out the entire time regarding Terra Luna, LFG, et cetera. Also to you guys, again, all these things, all these systems, all of these protocols, they are still in beta. We are still in beta testing, essentially. So please use risk management. All right. We're going to move on over and talk about DAOs, something different from, from FTX and the implosion <laughs> that's happening in this industry right now. The UK's Law Commission is looking into how DAOs fit into the legal system. So they're probing and looking into the relationship between DAOs and corporations the status of investors and token holders, the legal liability of open source code developers, and the ways in which DAOs tackle money laundering, file annual report, and pay taxes. So regulators over in the UK are really trying to understand, you know, how DAOs work as businesses and in turn, how do we regulate these businesses so we don't see some of the things that we're seeing happen in the rest of the industry happen here. Will, I'm going to toss this on over to you. What do you think? Is it still a little bit too early to be thinking about how to regulate DAOs? Well, I'm not a legal expert. You are the legal expert for the show. So I will not <laughs> opine on the UK's law system at all. But I will talk about DAOs a little bit. I like that we are ending the show on this topic because so far we've done a lot of negative stories this week. And this one's like a little biddle season, right? Like it is bear market time. It's time to like think about how DAOs can work again or how these other projects can like resurrect out of the ashes. And I think this story sort of falls within that parameter. DAOs themselves are interesting, but I don't think the last bull cycle really proved that DAOs work yet. There's still a lot of problems with them. The most notable one, of course, is what's happened with SushiSwap, 
over the last two years where a lot of the key people in that project had to leave the project because there wasn't a good hierarchy in place to make decisions. They weren't able to compete with the likes of Uniswap, which has a Uniswap's lab set up. Just didn't work. So it's been fizzling and the project has been losing volume. It was probably the most important DAO out there. Maybe there's a few other ones that do VC worker. If you consider MakerDAO's whole ecosystem a functioning DAO, then yes, those might be larger. But I think SushiSwap is probably the most instructive. They weren't able to get going. And for these sort of like legal probes, I think this is another question that those DAOs have been asking. Like, what happens if I'm working on a DAO and something goes bad? Who's culpable for that? Who's calling the shots? And we had the CFTC probe against uh, OkiDAO or UkiDAO the other week, right? And that's instructive of how things are going to be played out in the United States. If people are involved in a DAO, you can be subjected through a Discord channel. That can happen. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen in the UK. Obviously, very different legal systems, or not completely different, but somewhat different legal systems. So I won't give any thoughts there. But I do like to see these stories. Hopefully, people can keep working on them because they're important if DAOs are going to be a thing. Jen, I'll throw it back over to you. Yeah, just quick comment on the Uki DAO thing. I think what's happening in the UK, it sounds like regulators are trying to understand how DAOs work and in turn how that fits into the system that they've built. I think that's a little bit better than serving an entire DAO community on Discord. So I hope that, you know, US regulators can can look towards what's happening in the UK. That said, the probes that have happened in the US and North America have kind of led to nothing. And so when we talk about regulation in, in this industry, I just feel like we're going in circles and we're not really getting anywhere. But Zach, I see a lot of expressions on your face. What do you think of this? Nothing yet. Nothing yet. We'll see. I mean, DAOs are sort of emerging as a, from a regulator's perspective as a way to avoid liability. I think from an industry perspective, they are really fascinating opportunities for uh, human organization, right? And so I think hopefully there is an awareness that these are not just tools to escape criminal liability, as is the case with what's happening with UkiDAO, and that they are, they can be the next way that we have shared ownership and shared decision-making over projects that we're passionate about. All right, that's it. Uh, that's it for the show today. Thanks for watching us on The Hash. Uh, this is Coindesk TV. Thanks for being here. I'm Zach Seward. That's Wendy O, Jen Sanasi, and Will Foxley. We are also here on the Coindesk Podcast Network. So if you're listening there, thank you so much. We're glad to have you either way. All right, we'll be back tomorrow. Stay safe out there and have a good day. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Why? Why? If you Why? have T-Mobile 5G home internet, you might be hearing this Why? a lot. Why? Every time your internet slows down during the busiest hours. Why? Why? Because your network gives priority to cell phone users. Why? Why? Good question. Why not switch to Cox Internet with two times faster download speeds than T-Mobile 5G home internet during peak hours? Okay. Stop the whys and visit cox.com slash 5G home for details. T-Mobile prioritizes certain T-Mobile phone users over home internet users during times of congestion.